As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy or Else tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. On today's show, President Biden prepares to roll out an ambitious agenda ahead of his first address to a joint session of Congress. The potential recall in California gets more attention now that Caitlyn Jenner has declared her candidacy for governor. And Republicans trot out some truly ridiculous arguments against D.C. statehood. Then Tommy talks to Hunter Biden about his new book, Beautiful Things. But first, you don't have to watch Wednesday's joint session speech alone. We're reviving the group thread. Yay, group thread. Exciting. Uh, I missed it. I missed it too. So come follow along with us and some other folks from the Crooked Media universe. The whole family is going to be here at youtube.com slash Crooked Media on Wednesday night, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Uh, Come join us. It'll be fun. All right. Let's get to the news. On Wednesday evening, Joe Biden will mark 100 days in office with his very first address to a joint session of Congress. We'll dig into the speech in a second, but I do want to start with the political context. Virtually all the major news organizations released polls over the weekend that give the president an average job approval of about 54%, with 41% disapproving. Basically the mirror image of Trump's polling at this point in his presidency. Nearly 70% of voters are pleased with Biden's handling of the pandemic, and majorities approve of both his COVID rescue plan and his infrastructure plan. But he only gets around 30% for his handling of border security and immigration. That's his worst issue. And his approval among Republican voters is around 10%. Uh, I'll stop there to give you guys a chance to react. Tommy, anything in these numbers that you found uh, surprising or at least notable? Yeah. You know, also, I know we like pretend 100 days is a big mark, but you'd think that these uh, media outlets would talk and space out their polling since it's very expensive and clearly redundant here, but, uh, I digress. So just a polling dump. Yeah. It's just like, we don't need all the same numbers. So a couple things jumped out at me. One, 78% of Republicans strongly disapprove of how Biden is handling the job. That is higher than the equivalent number of Democrats who strongly disapproved of how Trump was doing at this point. And it's almost double the comparative number for Obama in 2009. To me, that just shows how deep and how damaging the Trump election lie really was. And I think if reporters or anyone else uh, that want to wring their hands about polarization, look no further than that number. Uh, Polarization is really the theme of this whole thing. I mean, Dan made this point in his newsletter, but Biden has done uh, an incredible job handling COVID. He's gotten shots in arms faster, and he mailed cash to millions of people. 
but his approval rating now is just barely over uh, his uh, election number, right? Which just speaks to how hard it is to move numbers these days. You also see it uh, on the numbers within the economy. So 58% of Americans rated the economy negatively. That's unchanged from a previous ABC poll in September of 2020. I'm talking about the ABC poll here. But what's interesting here is Democrats' views on the economy went from 18% positive in September to 49% positive today. Republicans viewed the economy positively. uh, 69% of Republicans viewed the economy positively in September, and 35% of them view it positively today. So the numbers stayed in the same place, but the parties just completely flipped their views of the economy based on who is in charge. So that just speaks to how you know, we're just being pulled in the direction of whatever team we're on. So the good news for Biden is the the COVID rescue package remains popular. The infrastructure spending he wants to do is wildly, shockingly popular. Uh, It's even popular to raise taxes on businesses to pay for it. So a lot of good things for him in terms of his agenda and the things he wants to do. The challenge is just going to be the fact that like the, the country is just supporting whatever team they're on. And that's, that's a, that's a tough place to be if you're trying to move numbers. I do want to stay on that for a second, because I think, as you said, and as Dan pointed out too, polarization sort of is the defining characteristic of politics today. Um, I think it's being driven primarily by the different information ecosystems we all inhabit, right? Like the idea that 70% of the country approves of how Biden's handling the pandemic, and it's the number one issue on voters' minds in a lot of these polls, and yet it's not driving the approval rating necessarily. The approval rating is at 54%, which is just a couple points above his vote share in the 2020 election, which was 51%. And also, even when you get into questions of ideology, most voters still think that he's somewhere in the middle, mm-hmm. right? The 42% say he's moderate in the NBC poll. 48% say his views are just about right in the Washington Post poll. So it's not like you got a bunch of voters out there saying they don't like him because he's because of his ideology, because he's too liberal or too conservative, whatever. It's it's partisanship. It's pure partisanship driving these numbers, which makes you realize that Biden is playing on a very narrow, narrow field between now and 2022 and now in 2024. And there aren't many minds that he can convince or Democrats can convince either way, no matter what they do, good or bad. Um, Love it. What did you think? What did you think about yeah, that number? I think I would see it differently than that. So I'm not disagreeing with what you're describing when you call it polarization, but it's really not polarization I think what we're seeing is like a Fox News tax. The grace period that a Democratic president would get from Republicans or a Republican president would get from Democrats just didn't happen. Even Barack Obama in 2009 had higher approval rating numbers amongst Republicans uh, at the beginning of his term. And I think what you saw over the course of the Obama administration over eight years is the rise of this Fox News ecosystem, which had always been there, obviously, with right wing talk and right wing radio. But like the rise of Facebook, the rise of these closed information ecosystems, what you see is Republican support for Barack Obama starts dropping from where it was low 30s, high 20s. It starts to drop and drop and drop. And then it it crater stays around 10, 15, whatever, so a low number. And it never comes back up. It, it, it never comes back up. And Joe Biden has not been afforded the same grace period because the the information ecosystem is now so closed that there's no space for that to happen. Um, and like, I, you know, his approval rating amongst independents is in the 60s. His approval rating among Democrats is in the 90s. His approval rating among Republicans is very, very low. 
And people will say, oh, like this is a mirror image of what happened under Trump. But independence under Trump stayed relatively low. They moved between like, you know, the 30s and the 40s. When I said mirror image, I mean, it's like Trump is different than sort of Trump is outside the what you'd expect from typical polarization, because Trump's approval rating was shit at this point. Right. But that's like what you said. It's, it's purely because of independence. The Democrats and Republicans for each successive Democratic and Republican president, you're seeing that even more Democrats are approving of the Democratic president and even more Republicans are approving of the Republican president as we go on to successive presidents, with the independents basically being the only group that sort of swings back and forth. Right. But what's well, what's interesting is in the numbers is the Democrats and the independents move a little bit more together because they're living more in reality than this cordoned right. off group of Republicans. And so when we call it polarization, really, it is this you know, 30 to 40% of the electorate that has now fully isolated itself. Uh, and they will be at zero for a Democrat and they will be in the 90s for a Republican. And we just have to accept, you know, I see I see some um, pundits say, oh, you know, Joe Biden's approval rating may be above 50, but it's the lowest for any new president. But that's the tax. That's like the Fox News tax that they're that we're going to have to accept. Uh, and the electorate is behaving like Election Day is tomorrow the entire time. You know, polarization spikes Polls, people move apart before presidential elections. Now that's just sticky and that's just continuing. Right. I do think, Tommy, I don't know if you agree with this, but like it, to me, this validates Biden's strategy, or at least it explains Biden's strategy so far, which is like do a lot of big things, pass a lot of your policies, which are popular without politicizing them, or at least to the extent that you can, right? Like he's always talking about how his plans will help Republicans and, you know, the Republicans support his plans. He also tries to stay out of these culture wars to the extent that he can while still standing up for progressive values. Like it does seem like the Biden people understand that with their with their approval rating among Republicans as low as it is, and they're not really going to fix that, they can't afford to piss off either independents or Democratic base voters. Yeah, I mean, in the CBS poll, they asked, like, do you want to see congressional Republicans try to compromise and find common ground, blah, blah, blah. Like, 70% of voters want to see the parties find common ground. Uh, when then you ask these same voters in the CBS poll, and what have the Republicans in Congress done? 61% of them said they oppose Joe Biden as much as possible, whereas 58% of them said Joe Biden is trying to compromise. So I think that absolutely validates the Biden strategy, despite all the hand wringing about like, how does Joe Biden define bipartisanship? He's kicking the shit out of Republicans in Congress when it comes to this exact metric. So I think, you know, ultimately, like, I, I think we make too much of these bipartisanship numbers in these polls. Like, sure, people want to see Washington get along and, you know, play nice. But in reality, I think they'll they care much more at the end of the day about the sort of policy things we're talking about, like the COVID relief bill, um, than they do, you know, tone. Well, that I think I feel like you can look back. It's like, okay, well, they decided to pass the COVID relief bill without a single Republican vote. How has that affected the approval rating right. of the COVID relief bill? It's incredibly has popular. It, it doesn't matter. Roof. Yeah, Through once it's passed, it's passed. You know, what's interesting is you see that the bigger issue now is that the um, the infrastructure plan, while popular, is less popular than the COVID rescue plan. And part of that is it's not because, oh, Joe Biden hasn't gone after Republicans on the infrastructure plan. It's enough people don't know what's in it. And also, I think that with the American Rescue Plan, he had the checks and people could understand that they were going to get a check in the mail. 
part of this whole fucking thing why it drives me nuts that we're uh, keep talking about infrastructure and how to define everything as infrastructure as opposed to just jobs is people need to know what's in this plan for them. Yeah. <laughs> like the Biden strategy is very simple. It's like, let's do things that make people's lives better, that they can see is going to make their lives better. And even with polarization as it is, we're going to go into 2022 knowing that we could be fucked in the midterms just because of the way polarization is. But from now until then, we're going to get everything done that we possibly can to improve people's lives to give us the, the, the most fighting chance possible in the midterms. Yeah, I mean, like you see on the infrastructure, the infrastructure proposal that uh, two to one people support making major changes to get Republican votes. But it's like, well, if there's no real understanding of what Republican changes would be versus Democratic changes, what actually are the ideological divides on the issue? Of course. Yeah, sure. Major changes. I don't know. Whatever. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Major changes to get Republican votes. Sounds good to me. It's play acting. Yeah, it is. Uh, let's talk about Wednesday night. The president's first speech to Congress isn't technically a state of the union. Uh, it's just referred to as an address to a joint session. So there's that. Uh, Biden is delivering his later than most presidents and to a smaller in-person audience because of COVID protocols. Only 200 people will be in attendance. Uh, members of Congress can't bring guests. No cabinet members. Only Chief Justice Roberts from the Supreme Court and only the chairman of the Joint Chiefs from the military. Uh, the speech will also mark the first time that two women, Kamala Harris and Nancy Pelosi, have ever sat behind the president on the dais. Um, love it. You want to talk about what you and I endured while writing these monstrous speeches and, and what the goal is supposed to be? <laughs> well, I'd be like every administration starts out with a plan to deliver a shorter, tighter, message-driven, non-laundry list version of this speech. And then that plan meets the reality of all the different pieces of uh, the agenda that need to be included. And that the, the, like, the State of the Union or the Joint Address, it, like, it becomes a deadline. Everybody loves a deadline. And it becomes this kind of organizing moment through which a bunch of different fights play out. But of course, that internecine arguments over policy agenda items doesn't tend to redound to like exquisite writing, you know, doesn't tend to lead no. to the best rhetoric. It's tough. I mean, we did, you know, that's why you you try to keep it as short as possible. You try to uh, inject moments of levity, which thank God you were there for a long time in the White House and you helped with this. I think we have a clip of one of your uh, your best oh, jokes from this the State of the Union. This is unbelievable. Now. We got rid of one rule from 40 years ago that could have forced some dairy farmers to spend $10,000 a year proving that they could contain a spill because milk was somehow classified as an oil. And with a rule like that, I guess it was worth crying over spilled milk. <laughs> uh, I, I'm confident a farmer can contain a milk spill without a federal agency looking over his shoulder. Now, let's be clear here. Uh, that was your joke. That was your <laughs> joke. My joke, which which was I think was deemed uh, was too edgy. Joke? It was too edgy for the State of the Union. It wasn't. It was just a different, worse joke. But my joke was, I don't see why we're making such a big deal out of a problem that can be solved with Oreos. That was my joke. Wow. Yeah, you can see why um, that really would have really would have cleaned things up if we. If we just added that in there too, I, I just I, yeah no that was that was my joke. It was fucking terrible. Um, I will blame everyone else in the everyone else in the federal government for seeing the speech, and not one person flagged that. Not one person flagged that awful joke, including Barack Obama. It worked. 
It worked. It was fine. It was it fine. I thought I was going. I thought I was going to quit the next day. Um, <laughs> what do you, what, Tommy? What do you think that the small in-person audience and lack of guests does to the speech? And also, apparently, I, I saw this in Punchbowl the other day. A bunch of Republicans in the House and the Senate have already said they're not going to attend. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess um, if Congress, if they can't bring guests, that means that Matt Gates can't bring another Holocaust-denying journalist, which is a thing that actually happened. I don't totally get these COVID protocols. I mean, especially if they're all vaccinated, but whatever. I mean, those who watched the Oscars last night probably got a decent dry run of how it might look and feel different, which is just smaller. There's a little less energy in the crowd. You know, it's just like the room feels bigger. Um, I wonder if Biden can bring guests because often the White House has a guest, you know, sits in the in the box of the first lady. And those individuals bring some of the biggest uh, emotional moments in these speeches. Right. You can imagine Biden bringing out a veteran who'd served multiple tours in Afghanistan to thank him or her uh, for their service and, and highlight that the war is ending. And those are usually resonant and sort of like get clipped for the news again. Like if these Republicans no show, I, I think that it ultimately is not that big of a deal. But I do, do think that will add to Biden's case that he is being more bipartisan and reasonable. And then these Republicans just are like petulant brats who no show the joint session. I mean, that seems very silly to me. I would note it in the speech to try to fuck them. Yeah. I would do it in a very nice way. But if there's a bunch of them, it doesn't come and be like, and look, yeah. I'm trying my hardest to work with Republicans on all these priorities. Some of them didn't even want to show up tonight. I hope that can change. Yeah, sorry, you, you know, could make sort it. Of twist the nut. Yeah. Twist the knife a little. Love it. I don't know if you remember, but the. In the first year we did this, um, Obama floated, you know, he's like, I think one of the most annoying things about the State of the Union is that like one side gets up and claps and the other do. And then there's everything's interrupted with applause. And maybe we should tell Congress in advance, we should talk to to Nancy and Harry and say, you know, don't have them stand up and no one should clap. And so it could just be like a shorter speech that's like more emotional. And I think immediately like Axelrod and Gibbs and everyone was like, yeah, that's not a good idea. What was the year? <laughs> but, <laughs> what wasn't there a year where they were like, let's not sit. Let's not sit on opposite sides of the aisle. Let's each go with a Republican. Oh, yeah. Everyone like every buddy. every Democrat and Republican like uh, brought yeah. an, an opposite member of the party uh. friend to sit. So it was like some fucking performative theater bull bipartisan bullshit that was terrible but I, I like i think that the lack of people in there um the fact that there's not going to be as much energy and applause speaks to the need to have an even shorter speech as usual that's more thematic and less and includes less applause lines which by the way biden has done this before he's practiced this because his whole campaign he was robbed of huge crowds that you usually yeah. get during a presidential campaign it's the way he gave the convention speech it's the way he gave the election night speech so he's sort of practiced in this but i, I do wonder if it's going to be shorter because of that and i think it could be more effective that way i do also think well first of all what i would i what i hope is happening is if republicans refuse to go Nancy Pelosi's like, okay, those will just be more applauding standing Democrats in the space. Uh, yeah, like I do think it can be a shorter speech. It's also um, like it is every time you see a space that's usually filled, that's spread out, it reminds everyone of the gravity of the moment and why he was elected and the task before him. It, I think it is. Yeah, like there's going to be masks too, right? Nope. Like and Kamala just, and Nancy will have masks on, I'm sure. Behind yeah, them. I mean, it's 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 um, it's I think the last part of you know. Uh, hopefully, we're moving out of this pandemic, and if we are, this will be one of the last major events in which his the his, you know it is defined by the reality of the pandemic, and that will be infused in the speech and 
uh, I think only adds to the credibility he has gained on this issue as somebody largely respected even by a lot of Republicans for his leadership on COVID. I do think in terms of what he needs to achieve, I would probably spend less time on what we've already achieved with the pandemic. Like people understand that his approval rating is, is very high on that. And, you know, one of the reasons I think the American Rescue Plan was able to pass so easily is they sold that bill really well and including what what was in that bill really well. And everyone understood that. And I don't think people know that about either the American Jobs Plan or the American Families Plan. And I would spend a lot of time just really making sure that every single person at home knew exactly what they were going to get out of these bills and how their life was going to change. That would be my main goal. I don't know if you guys think there's anything else they should be he should be trying to do. I mean, I, I like that you guys are... Um... Uh, still lobbying for for shorter speeches and less work from retirement. I, I respect that very much. Um, you know, like the three of us were talking about tone. I mean, I, like this is my personal take based on no data, no focus groups, just like literally what I want to hear. I think that over the last year plus, like Biden has done an amazing job consoling the nation through COVID, right? The, the cliche about Bill Clinton was he felt your pain. But the reality with Joe Biden is that he has endured more pain and all this genuine heartbreak and, and more than anyone should have to endure. And what's admirable about him as a human being is he's, the way he's channeled that into empathy for others. But I, I would really like, like sort of what Lovett was saying, I, I would love to see the balance tip heavily on the side of optimism here. And I don't think it has to be blind optimism or like lofty rhetoric about how we've always, you know, succeeded, blah, blah. Like it can be contingent optimism, meaning you can say, we've gotten 200 million shots in arms uh, because we passed the COVID relief bill. People could stay in their homes because we, you know, sent them checks. We let them defer mortgage payments. I am so optimistic about the future of this country and the economy. But we need to pass this infrastructure bill to get to that even better place, right? Like, but I, I just I don't want to see us wallowing in how awful things have been because I think people are pretty well aware of how shitty yeah. the past year and a half has been at this point. And I, and I think I, I, at least I am just desperate for whatever feels like reality, the new or getting back to like sort of new reality. I, I just I could not agree more. I mean, I, I was feeling it watching the beginning of the Oscars last night, right? It's like, and, it, you know, ratings for the Oscars are down. Ratings for all these award shows have been way down. And, you know, my own completely untested theory is part of it is everyone has suffered this past year. Many people far more than others. People have grieved. And everyone's dealing with that in their own lives. And when you're t tuning in to some public event, like, there is a limit to how much I think we all want to be reminded of that all the time, right? Yeah. It is appropriate to have a moment of silence for those we've lost and to talk about the people we've lost and the grief we're going through. There's absolutely a moment for that. But then, like, you really do have to lift people up at some point because it is, it's just tough to watch and it's tough to keep reminding yourself over and over of that. I also, um, you know, th there's this... um. <laughs> Like some of the polling around youth approval of Biden has like started this conversation about like just like the transformative nature and surprisingly mm -hmm. transformative nature of these first 100 days. And a lot of people have also noted this, that that maybe Joe Biden's one of his superpowers is he makes every position he takes seem like a moderate consensus view. It's just it, it is infused. It's part of his history. It's part of his age. It's part of his the fact that he's an old white guy. Um, but this is also an opportunity, I think, to like to make moderate uh, an expansive, progressive definition of politics, like to make an argument for the, the the scope of what he's doing in a larger way. Yes, talk about the policies, talk about what they'll do, but like 
now that I think he has the kind of now full backing of Democrats and a lot of respect from progressives as he moves into this next phase of trying to get infrastructure done, trying to get this family plan done. Like, I think it's an opportunity to make a larger case. Like, this is my philosophy. This is my ideology. Uh, and staking claim, like, for this new Democratic consensus in front of the biggest audience he'll have for a very long time. Well, I'm sure he'll do that when he uh, almost certainly will talk about his American Jobs Plan and his new American Families Plan, which reportedly calls for as much as $1.8 trillion in spending on national child care, universal pre-K, tuition-free community college, paid family and medical leave, bigger Affordable Care Act subsidies, and a four-year extension of the child tax credit that would cut child poverty in half. Biden will also reportedly finance the plan by proposing higher taxes on the wealthy, specifically a higher capital gains tax and a higher top marginal income tax rate. Um, This may sound like a lot of great stuff in one bill, but just to give you an idea of how challenging this will be for Biden, he already got a letter from 17 Democratic senators asking him to add health care reform to the American Families Plan, including an expansion of Medicaid, lowering the eligibility age for Medicare and negotiating lower drug prices. Love it. What do you think the pros and cons are of adding all that to the American Families Plan? Like, should Biden add health care? And why do you think he wouldn't? Well, I, it's not it's not the health care bill. It's the it's a different set of policies. Like I I, I want to do those things, too. But there's a you know, I, I think Saki's talked about this in the briefing room that, that this bill isn't the, isn't the sum total of all the administration's priorities. If the if the view is like we should be doing these healthcare pieces first, like that, there's an argument to be made for that. But on the other hand, at the same time, you have Joe Manchin saying he's not ready to do all kinds of things to pay for this. He's not sure about the expense like. There are bounds on both sides of this issue. I get pushing to make it more expansive and turning this into a kind of more omnibus healthcare bill too, but like getting this giant, massive change to the way in which we do family leave, medical leave, childcare, it's a big, giant proposal. And like, we can make it even bigger, but like, I I don't know. It just seems like saying like, why isn't this everything is like, is, is, is tough to justify. It is tough because I think, you know, I know that Jen said it's not the end of his agenda, but it sort of is the last train leaving the station before the, I mean, right, we only have two more reconciliation bills. We have the American Jobs Plan that's got to go in one, and then you basically got to have the American Families Plan go in the other. And then that's all she wrote, unless, again, we're like hoping for the the miracle of getting rid of the filibuster for just any old legislation. Um, But they're not going to be able to probably do another budget bill there might be one more that you get in right before the midterms, but it's hard to do it in a midterm year, right? But you could do it at the beginning. You could, like, I don't totally understand why the beginning of 2022 is a period of time where Democrats feel like they can't legislate. Yeah, I'm wondering if the American Families Plan, I think that the American Families Plan reconciliation bill might be stealing it from the beginning of 2022. That's why how you're yeah. getting in an extra one but, in, no, but in we got 2021. The, parla- the parliament, the parliamentarians, like you can do any, you could, we're on, we are unlimited. We get all the reconciliation bills we want. Yeah, it changes every other yeah. day. It's really tough. And I think that like the Biden people are thinking they probably, you know, learned another lesson from, from the Obama administration as they've learned many, like, do we really want to dive into a big healthcare fight on top of everything else if we're going to shore up and expand the Affordable Care Act with all these extra subsidies. That said, expansion of Medicaid, lowering the eligibility age for Medicare, and negotiating lower drug prices, incredibly, incredibly popular things, super important, would change a lot of lives. But that's not to say that, of course, all the other things they're going to do in the American Families Plan wouldn't also change lives. I mean, this is some some pretty big stuff. Universal pre-K, tuition-free community college, the child tax care credit alone, basically social security for kids making it permanent would be a huge, huge legacy item. So 
it's tough. It's really tough. So, Tommy, Republicans are freaking out about the higher taxes on the wealthy, of course, uh, which Axios referred to as eye popping. Uh, are these tax hikes eye popping? How should how should Biden handle the uh, the coming tax attack on this? I mean, I think that he should lean into this fight. So, you know, the fact that Biden wants to pay for this infrastructure plan by increasing taxes on businesses is actually more popular than the plan itself. And so what we're talking about here is Trump cut the corporate tax rate from 35 percent to 21 percent. Biden is saying, let's raise the corporate tax rate back up to 28 percent. I don't think anyone thinks the sky is going to fall then. I don't think that's eye popping. Um, And uh, voters are also broadly supportive of increasing taxes on the very wealthy. And so what Biden wants to do is return the top marginal income tax rate to 39.6 percent, which is where it was before the, the Trump tax cut. And then he wants to fix part of the tax code that is just clearly unfair that says money you make from investments will be taxed at a lower rate than money earned from work, right? So a millionaire who sells a stock that they've owned for more than a year pays a 20% federal rate. That's nuts. Biden will basically make that tax rate the same as what that person would pay on income. And they'll get rid of, you know, loopholes that allow rich people to save tons of money on taxes when they die and they pass on assets like artwork or like stocks to their kids. So like, I think the whole thing is, is pretty logical. Uh, someone who just passively owns an asset shouldn't pay less tax on income derived from that thing than an individual who's a construction worker or a doctor or some other job. And then like to the, the eye popping description, I mean, the top marginal tax rates were in the 70% bracket in the 70s. They were in the they were as high as 94% uh, right after World War II. Like those are eye-popping numbers. I think what most people think is that the really eye-popping offensive thing about US tax policy and 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 what it has allowed to happen in this country is the economic inequality. So it's funny, like Republicans, you can tell they're just like desperate to call Biden uh, you know, sort of a tax and spend liberal, but when you look at the Democrats' tax cuts, including the March stimulus, uh, the net effect is to drive down tax rates on low and middle income people so much so this year that those earning less than $75,000 on average will owe nothing in federal income taxes. That's where we want to be as a party, cutting taxes for people making less than seventy five grand, raising taxes on billionaires who are passing along artwork to their kids. That feels like a no-brainer. I would have a huge portion of the speech Wednesday night taking on this tax issue. I would be running ads about it. I would be goading Republicans into this fight. It is the most popular issue that we could fight on. And like you said, Tommy, the the corporate tax increase is more popular than the infrastructure plan. And the tax increase on wealthy individuals and capital gains taxes is even more popular than the corporate tax increase. Because, you know, corporations say, oh, if you raise taxes on us, we'll pass them on to consumers. And sometimes people buy that and stuff like that. But raising taxes on wealthy individuals on the top 1% or in the case of the capital gains, like the top 0.4% is like a 70% issue. Uh, Donald, Donald Trump was least popular two times in his presidency, two times of all the bad shit he did, the insurrection, the caging children, everything. The two times he was the least popular was when he tried to pass that tax cut for the rich and when he tried to take people's health care away. That's when he was least popular. And so, like, if Republicans do not want to have a fight, or at least the smart Republicans do not want to have a fight about taxes, and Biden should take it to them every single day from now until the midterms. Yeah, I, I by the way, I assume the reason he's starting with the uh, cap gains rate, ultimately, if you include, like, the Obama surcharge above 
the top marginal rate is because he's actually negotiating with Democrats from 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 like uh, wealthier states. Like that's where this negotiation will largely take place. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like <laughs> the Republican position is no taxes on inheritance, uh, no tax on wealth, lower taxes on corporations and the ability for families to perpetually pass on assets while never paying taxes as those assets gain in value. Like it's a workers party now. It's a workers party. Like that is like the Republican <laughs> position, like the official position is for that is oligarchy. Like that's what that does. That creates a giant pool of basically permanently untaxable wealth that grows and grows and grows and is passed on from generation to generation. That is like aristocracy. That's what that creates. A, a situation in which wealth is rarely taxed and is able to accrue in value over generations without ever actually being taxed as it grows is a recipe for creating an aristocracy. That is what they want to do. And that is what they have succeeded in doing uh, over the past few years. And we have to roll it back. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How do you cope when there's something weighing on you or something you need to get off your chest? You know the best way to do it? Best way to cope is to talk about it. Not just cram it down, not do what generations of New Englanders have done, just stuff their feelings down, maybe cover it with a coat of booze. No, you got to talk to someone, you got to work it out, get it off your chest. And just by doing that, you will feel better. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. All right. We haven't yet talked about the uh, potential recall election brewing here in our home state, but it's getting a lot more attention now that Caitlyn Jenner announced last week that she's joining the list of candidates who intend to challenge Governor Gavin Newsom if the effort moves forward. The current recall petition was first introduced before COVID hit in February 2020, but it gained steam when a judge lengthened the window of time to collect signatures as a result of the pandemic, and conservatives grew frustrated with Newsom's public health restrictions. Recall supporters say that they have the nearly 1.5 million signatures they need to get on the ballot sometime this fall, but we'll know for sure any day now when election officials finish verifying those signatures. Jenner is one of several Republicans running, including John Cox, who lost to Newsom by almost 24 points in 2018, and a bunch of other goobers who might potentially run, including Trump Twitter troll Rick Grinnell and adult film actress Mary Carey, who ran against Gray Davis in the 2003 recall. All right, first, Tommy, how common are recall elections? How do they work? And why would a recall be potentially more challenging for Newsom than just a, a regular election? So one thing that folks should know is that this recall could cost the state up to $400 million. And then, but Gavin is up, but Gavin is up in 2022, right? So we're, we might drop $400 million to recall a guy a year early. That is so stupid. Also, you just like, you can recall a, a politician for basically anything in California. It's not like impeachment where there's some bar you need to reach. You basically need to get signatures from 12% of the voters who voted in the last election or about 1.5 million people. California is a huge state. You could probably recall Gavin Newsom with like just QAnon believers and anti-vaxxers, which is basically what's happening. And as John noted, it's especially easy this year because the organizers got this extra 120 days to collect signatures. So it's likely that we will 
go forward with a recall. And, and voters will ultimately be asked to vote on two things. One, should Gavin Newsom be recalled? Uh, and two, if he's recalled, who should replace him? Now, the, the whole fight is over part one. But the thing to know about question two, about like who gets on the ballot, is it's, again, absurdly easy to get on the ballot. You basically have to pay like four grand. In 2003, there were 135 candidates on the ballot, and you could see exponentially more this time. And so like the, the reason this is such a bad and dumb process is you just have to win with a plurality. So you could see a Rick Grinnell or, or a, a Caitlyn Jenner win with like 15% of the vote. So the good news for Gavin is it, it seems very unlikely that this will work. Um, the, you know, lots of money is pouring in from billionaires and, and, and like you know, national political parties. But, you know, when Gray Davis was recalled in 2003, uh, Gray Davis was way less popular. And the Democratic registration advantage in the state today is triple what it was then. So it's a waste of time. I think it's really annoying for Gavin and his folks. But we do need to pay attention because like, you know, there could be another variant. There could be a bad fire season. Like you never know what could happen. And the people behind this effort are like some dark, dark, weird, crazy people. Like the guy leading the recall effort who filed the petition as a retired cop who posted on Facebook, microchip illegal aliens. It works. Just ask animal control. Like that's the kind of the caliber of person that is behind this. So it, it's worth watching. Recalls are circuses. It's, it. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's, it's a circus. Yeah, like so Gray Davis, much less popular. State was less Democratic. And it got to 55% on the first question of do you want to recall? Uh, and even though there were a ton of people on the ballot, I think Schwarzenegger got like 48%. So it like it yeah. coalesced around Schwarzenegger because he was somebody who had actually was a celebrity. Obviously, it was incredibly well known and also had some involvement uh, in politics. Man, you know, this was supposed to be a crank thing. And then the pandemic happened. Uh, I will say uh, if they do have the votes and it seems like they do for the recall, this will be the most expensive French laundry visit, uh, most expensive <laughs> restaurant meal in like human fucking history, uh, because it really did like it turned something that was about right wing politics, big VC real estate donors who kind of fund this shit every time into like a larger question about his pandemic response, which is, uh, yeah. you know, bummer. Just to underline some of the um, facts Tommy was giving us. So, uh, you know, a couple polls so far. Basically, the recall, do you want to recall Newsom, is polling at around 40% in the last couple polls recently. His approval rating is currently at 52%. By contrast, Gray Davis's approval ratings when he was recalled in 2003, the only other governor to ever be recalled in, in California history. He was in the low to mid-20s. The low to mid twenties. Of course, he was recalled. So Newsom is still, you know, it's it's down from Newsom's approval rating earlier in the pandemic and earlier in his ter in his term when he was up at fifty seven, sixty, but he's still at forty two. And as Tommy pointed out on the registration, Democrats also account for forty six percent of the registered voters versus just twenty four percent for Republicans. So that's just it, the the shape of the state, the shape of the electorate, just makes it really, really tough. We're also sitting, by the way, right now with the lowest per capita COVID infection rate of any state in the continental yeah. U.S. right now. I think only Hawaii is doing better than us. Yeah, so. look, 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 governing any state during COVID was really hard. Like, I, we still don't have a handle on why and, and when these like waves came back. So I, I have some sympathy there. Like, I do think people were particularly pissed about reopening a little too early and then some of the questions around schools. But I do think by the time this vote actually occurs, like that should all be solved. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I just think the thing to underscore is like 12 percent 
you need signatures from 12% of equivalent of the people who voted in the last election. That just means that like everyone, every governor could be recalled at any time because there's always like 12% of your opponent's base that hates you enough to, to sign one of these signatures. And if you have some billionaire backing a direct mail campaign or, or an effort to organize it, it's very easy to do. And then the judge gives them another 120 days. I mean, this is very, it's a messy situation, but boy, these California rules are stupid. They're they so stupid. stupid. They're so stupid. What are we doing here? We're going to spend, he's he's up, he's up in a fucking year. What are we, it's like ridiculous, ridiculous. Nuts. So they are stupid. We are, we are living with them. Unfortunately, we cannot get rid of the rules. We're facing this. What if you're love? It, if you're Gavin Newsom and you see Caitlyn Jenner enter the race, are you happy? Are you not happy? Like, what's your what's your strategy if you're Gavin Newsom in this uh, in this recall election, which he will likely face? I don't think anybody's happy. I don't think you're happy about any of this. Um, I will say, like, I do see a bunch of different people kind of like casting out for what to say around Caitlyn Jenner. Like I saw Karen Bass talking about the fact that she didn't think Republicans would get behind a trans candidate. Um, I do think like the fact that Caitlyn Jenner is a former Trump supporter who is now meeting with um, uh, Trump, uh, Trump campaign manager, former campaign manager, Brad Parscale, uh, and that her strategy seems to be entirely rooted in like xenophobia and the same kind of Trump politics, death penalty, attacking the DAs, blaming Gavin Newsom for the decisions of uh, separately elected district attorneys, um, uh, I think is like where I would be focused on. Like this is a Republican backed, Trump money backed, uh, real estate interest backed efforts. And I would be attacking the whole effort and then Caitlyn Jenner as the face of it uh, for being a uh, right wing Trump backed. Like I see people calling Caitlyn Jenner the Republican candidate. I would think about calling her the Trump candidate, given how much Trump interest is now behind her. Um, and I would be focusing on that. Tommy, what do you think? What, what do you think about Caitlyn Jenner's entrance to the race and how would you how would you run against her? I mean, look, Caitlyn Jenner you know, jumped into the race and immediately demonstrated why she shouldn't be running and doesn't know anything about politics. Like Lovett just mentioned, she attacked Governor Newsom for decisions made by the San Francisco district attorney but in California, we vote for our DAs. Gavin doesn't appoint them, right? So, like, come on, get your shit together. Um, I, I would, like, the, the real, the, the campaign is on this first question of should Gavin Newsom be recalled? And if I'm his team, I'm going to talk about all the things I did well. I'm going to keep sort of, like, doing the job well, get shots in arms, get schools reopened, right? Like, show competence. And then just say... The way this works is if you vote to recall me, there's a serious chance that you're going to get some hardcore MAGA person, whether it's Caitlyn Jenner or Rick Grinnell, one of the most like unhinged assholes to ever, you know, come out of Republican politics. So like, you know, th that's what it could be like the, the downside risk of recalling Gavin Newsom is so high given how much these votes get split and the fact that you can win with a plurality that like, you know, you're you just shouldn't risk it. Be my message. Yeah, I think you're. I think it's exactly right. It's 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 me, Gavin Newsom versus Trumpian chaos. Because yeah. if if it, if 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 you vote and the, and the recall happens, any any one of these fucking nutcases could end up being your governor. And by the way, like here's our state: lowest COVID infection rate. Um, all of the public health restrictions will be lifted on June fifteenth. Needs to make sure that all the kids are back in school by the fall as well, because because you don't want any other issues. But if all those issues are solved, right? Like if the pandemic 
sort of it starts fading in people's minds, or at least some of the public health restrictions part of the pandemic, and people are vaccinated, things are going well, and the state's got surplus budget right now too, then he can tout the job he's done and say, it's either me or chaos, and it, a bunch of MAGA people, and that's that. Um, so, But it's not, um, it's not great. Not great that we're going to have to deal with the whole the Caitlyn Jenner show for the next however many months. I, I think if you ask, like if you talk to Gavin's people off the record, like this is very annoying. They feel like they're very well positioned to beat question one, which is should we be recalled? But you just don't know what you don't know. Like we, none of us saw a pandemic coming uh, a little over a year ago, right? Like bad things can happen in the state. He could get blamed for it. And so they're taking it very seriously. They brought a new staff to bring it on. But it's just it, this state is like so close to ungovernable that you throw a fucking recall election on top of that. And it's just it's absurd. I just can't believe we're doing this. And then there's the question of whether or not you want some kind of Democratic stalking horse yeah. in the candidates. And like I like it is going to be inevitably Gavin Newsom's position that you don't want that, that you don't want to introduce. the complexity Yeah, no, of, they don't want court. that. They don't want that at all. You don't want to. be, But but. One of the lessons from 2003 is you don't want that till all of a sudden you wish you really had rallied behind one person. Yeah. In 03, they had Cruz Bustamante on, on the ticket and just Schwarzenegger mopped up. So, yeah, I, I don't see like someone look, celebrity and name ID is is everything. We, we've all learned that the hard way recently. But I, I don't know if Caitlyn Jenner is the one to do it. Like Schwarzenegger was certainly next level in terms of fame. But, yeah, the, this this thing could cut a million different ways. Yeah, I think that's why Gavin is vacuuming up endorsements as fast as he possibly can from Democrats so that no one else runs. On the other side, um, Caitlyn Jenner has not received many endorsements, including not a single endorsement from not a single word spoken from a Kardashian or a Jenner. Chloe, Kendall, <laughs> Courtney. It's tough. Uh, none of them. None of them have endorsed. None of them have endorsed it's, the um, yet. So it's uh, that's something. It is a it is a sad state. That what we want to say is this is of course ridiculous and there's nothing to worry about. But we've stopped we being able just to came, say that. We all just quite came some from the time Trump ago. Era. <laughs> yeah, we all just came from the Trump era. Uh, if you want to help stop the um, the the recall effort, there is a website stoptherepublicanrecall.com. You can find ways to volunteer and donate to make sure this uh, this nightmare doesn't happen. Um, All right. One more thing to mention before we get to Tommy's interview with Hunter Biden. Um, The House passed legislation on Thursday that would make the District of Columbia the 51st state, granting it two senators and appropriate representation in the House. The proposal is now in front of the Senate and Republicans are offering quite a few reasons that they're not happy with it. And love it. I believe you've prepared a game for the occasion. The District of Columbia. The museums are free, but the people are not. The House has now passed a bill to make D.C. the nation's 51st state which would be called Washington Douglas Commonwealth, named after, of course, Douglas Emhoff. The bill heads to the Senate, (laughs) where Democrats will either change Senate rules and pass the bill with 50 votes, or Joe Manchin will use the powers of Kilgrave to find 10 Republicans to support the addition of one beautiful new star to the Stars and Stripes. Republicans are scrambling to justify their opposition to granting full and equal citizenship to one of the most diverse regions in the country without saying that they just don't want to create two Democratic senators in perpetuity with a dash of... It's pretty black and that just bugs us. This has led to some pretty ornate justifications for opposing statehood. So let's see if John and Tommy can tell the real quotes from the fake ones in a game we're calling DC is a state of mind. Are you ready? John and Tommy. So ready. Ready. 
some of these are real. Some of them are fake. Here we go. There's no, I mean, obviously they're all fake, but some of them were really said. There's no question that D.C. residents already impact the national debate. For the members here today, how many of you saw D.C. statehood yard signs or bumper stickers or banners on your way to the hearing today? I certainly did. Where else in the nation could such a simple action reach so many members of Congress? Tommy, I'll start with you. Real. That's real. That's Zach Smith from the Heritage Foundation. Next quote. Look, if you're not fracking, you're not a state. It's as simple as that. But I'm here today to talk about the border crisis. John? Shit. Uh, real. No, it's fake. I made it up. Oh, <laughs> that was good. That was good. It was the that twist was so at close. the end. The twist at the end gave it, uh, yeah. gave it some some. The some fracking reality. thing totally sounds like something they'd say. <laughs> Tommy, over to you. D.C. wouldn't even qualify as a singular congressional district because of its low population. <laughs> Real and said in front of Liz Cheney, with a, who has a lower population, I believe. Yes, yeah. D.C., that's correct. That's from Congresswoman Nancy Mace. D.C. wouldn't even be the smallest state. Uh, it would be ahead of Vermont and, yes, Wyoming. John, over to you. Wyoming has three times as many workers in mining, logging, and construction, and 10 times as many workers in manufacturing. Wyoming is a well-rounded working-class state. Fake. That's real. <laughs> From Senator Tom Cotton. Uh, uh, if you put it through the Google Translator, uh, well-rounded does mean white. <laughs> uh, that's how you translate <laughs> that quote. Uh, Tommy, you're absolutely crushing it. Mopping Next up. quote crushing. over to you. Uh, enough with the power grab. There are only eight Starbucks locations. <laughs> uh, fake because uh, there's way more Starbucks than that. That's that's yeah. correct. There are there are only eight Starbucks in Vermont. I Alaska <laughs> has around twenty. DC has ninety one. It also wouldn't be a good reason. John, back to you. The founding fathers never intended for Washington DC to be a state. Uh, real. Yes, that's real from Senator Mike Rounds of South Dakota, which is one of the smallest states in the country because we made two Dakotas. Fun fact, when President Harrison signed the papers granting statehood to the Dakotas, uh, there was a rivalry of which one got to become a state first. So they shuffled the papers and it's not recorded. We don't oh. know which state became a state first, South wow. Dakota or North Dakota. Isn't that interesting? I like that. I like that. Yeah. 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 yeah it's random. Let's combine them. <laughs> Let's combine them. Uh, Tommy, to you. D.C. would be the only state without an airport, without a car dealership, without a landfill. Real. That is real. That was Congressman Jody Heiss of Georgia. Of course, D.C. does have car dealerships. And while it may not have a landfill, it does have a repository of trash called the Heritage Foundation. Uh, Tommy, <laughs> you've won the game. It was a it was a real it was a stunning it's a route. defeat. It was a route. It was a route. Uh, when we come back, hi, I don't know, something. John, over to you. <laughs> when we come back. <laughs> We will have Tommy's interview with Hunter Biden about his new book, Beautiful Things. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com streaming. NetSuite.com streaming. I am very excited to be joined today by Hunter Biden, who is the author of the new book, Beautiful Things. Hunter, thanks for doing the show. Thanks for having me, Tommy. Thank you. So 
I don't know if you remember this, but we met once I, before. hundred percent uh, on a plane. To do Boston. you remember this? I, yeah. Okay. 2004. Yeah. I'm 24 years old. We're seated next to each other. The flight to Boston to the Democratic Convention. I'd just been allowed to go by my boss. You made the enormous mistake of asking me why I was headed to Boston. And then I think I vomited um, anxiety and excitement at you nonstop for two hours. Yeah. So thank you for that. Exactly. You know what? Um, um, yeah, I remember we talked about your uncle. Yeah. 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 yeah who, was a, who was a political writer. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And then and I think about two hours, like um, an hour 59 into the flight, I said, you know, I realize uh, I forgot to ask you what you're doing here. And you just said to me, I think, oh, you know, my dad's speaking. You know, you didn't really get in, into it in any way. Yeah. Didn't big time me. It was just like, oh, yeah, yeah. I'm going to see my dad. No, so, it's anyway, so funny I because I, I absolutely remember that um, uh, uh, vividly, vividly. Yeah. That's so funny. Yeah. God. Yeah. Well, long time ago. Uh, so listen, thank you for doing this. The, the, the book, again, uh, is Beautiful Things. It is... Um, I felt like it's sort of like two separate books that are that are inextricably connected, right? There, there's the part about you know the loss of of your brother Bo and the stories about you know like the love and resiliency of your family, and then there's an account of battles with addiction and a journey to sobriety. And I was hoping we could start by just you know talking about Bo because you know what became clear to me from reading the book was that you guys were more than just brothers. You know, you often talked about yourself and Bo or, or yourself and your dad and Bo is almost like one entity that was bound together by love and by tragedy and these connections that were just unbelievably strong. I was wondering if we could just start by, by talking about him and that bond you shared with your family, because I do think it's so important to understanding you. Well, I, I love talking about it, too. Thanks, Tommy. I mean, you, you had met Bo a number of times, right, Tommy? And... Um, he was a special person um, to everybody who met him, literally everybody who met him. And for me, you know, I think that Bo and I would have been as close as we were by the nature of my family and the, the way that um, we were uh, uh, a year and a day apart. Um, and, uh, and we were the firstborn in my family of that generation. And so we were kind of everybody's um, playthings, my aunts and uncles and but when my mom and sister died, um, it drew us even closer together in the sense that uh, we were the focus of everyone's love in my family for a very long period of time, uh, trying to make us whole again. Um, and, uh, and I often, and I talk about this in the book, I felt, um, I feel a sense of um, a guilt almost in, uh, in talking about that period of time in my life as, any, as, as a trauma, uh, because what I remember most, uh, what is at the forefront of my mind, is just the incredible amount of love that was given to us. But in particular, the incredible amount of love that was, uh, that was my brother, period. We were together constantly. Um, and we were with my dad constantly we had this role where we could go to um with my dad wherever whenever we wanted um and you know we, we probably took took advantage of it a little um too much sometimes but uh so we were you know we'd be on the train with him down to dc running around the halls of the russell senate building um, my dad took the train back and forth every day and then um that bond just existed until the day he died uh we we literally spoke. Uh, I think people 
somebody wrote a thing like, oh my God, you know, the president has to uh, call his son every day. Like that must be a burden. My dad has called me every day since the day I left for college. Um, and uh, it's a lot easier to get in touch with me now um, than it was <laughs> at other times. But, um, but Bo was, Bo was my rock. And I always kind of considered us two sides of the same coin. Uh, and uh, he was as, as proud of me as I was of him. And, uh, and it was a, uh, and that's what the, you know, it's, I'm glad you started here because really, you know, the book is really a love story. It's a love letter to yeah. those, to the people that, um, that never gave up on, uh, on me. Um, uh, and it's a story that a lot of families I think will understand because so many people are going through it right now. Yeah. I mean, the book, the book is like a love story about your family. And I, and I feel like I, I learned a lot about who you are as a group, the character of your father, you know, and, it, and it, it's beautiful in that sense. <clears throat> it's also includes some incredibly raw descriptions of tough times in your life, including when Bo was sick. And it was hard to read, but I, th there was part of me that came through this thinking like, it's good for people to read this because when my dad died from cancer, I couldn't help but notice how often I saw uplifting stories about people beating it, or uh, it described euphemistically, right? As like, this person fought valiantly against the disease. And it, at times it, it it made me mad because my experience was like fucking hell. You know what I mean? Watching someone like deal with the the how cruel a disease can be and how painful it can be and how traumatizing that experience was. And, you know, you said in the book and you said here, like you refuse to give yourself the excuse of trauma or tragedy leading to addiction, but it, it was hard not to read that and just feel like the accumulation of what you had experienced or, or to see how that could read, lead to turning to alcohol or a relapse down the road. And I, I just don't know. I, I was wondering, like, you're, you're so you're almost hard on yourself to rule that out. And I kind of wondered why. Yeah. And, I, you know, the thing is, is that I don't um, I don't rule it out, uh, but I never want to use it as an excuse. And I also don't um, uh, want anyone to come away with the impression, which they won't if they read the book, of that my experience is any way unique. I mean, Tommy, you the amount of, I mean that you loved your dad, and and having to uh, go through that is um, is is too often a story that I, I don't know any that that has not touched someone. Uh, at, uh, in some way, whether it's grief and loss, um, uh, someone uh, dying at, uh, uh, of cancer, or whether it's uh, a tragic loss, like the loss of my mother and my sister in an auto accident. And what the book is really, um, I hope, saying to people is you're not alone. And by the way, you know, is that you're not alone in the fact that, uh, that you're um, your brother, your dad, your your daughter lost their battle to cancer. It wasn't because they didn't try hard. I know that right. I, I understand right. that frustration that you had. I, I would get really angry too. Not angry, frustrated and confused. And I, you know, it, it, there's too many uh, words that could probably possibly describe the, that feeling. Or maybe there's no word that can fully describe the feeling of saying, we're fighting too. Like what, what the hell are you talking about? Like, right. And, you know, uh, and then 
grief is a, is a really funny thing. And, you know, I knew a way to, um, that was kind of the answer to all things for addicts, for someone that suffers from addiction, what I believe is ultimately a brain disease is, uh, is, you know, people ask, why do you do drugs? Well, because they work um, and they work until they don't. Uh, it's the fastest way I know of, of erasing that pain. And uh, it's, yeah. the, it's the fastest way to, to, to hold different health for me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and so like a, a lot of memoirs, a lot of books, especially if like you're not a, a politician, but you're someone who sort of like come from that world. They often sand off the edges or omit the worst details. You, you clearly did not do that. You talk in great detail about al alcohol and drug abuse, including extended periods of like sort of nonstop crack use. W why did you decide to just lay it all out? Was that a tough decision? No, it wasn't because the, um, when I, when I decided to, write the write the book i knew that the book that i wanted to write was the whole the, the the full story of the the depths of my addiction because i don't i didn't i think that the the the, the value of the story uh and the reason i'm so vivid about it, it was to let people know that are suffering sick in the same way that i was and it's millions of people is that they're not alone is that i was i was truly there I understand, guys. And by the way, to take some of the stigma out of it, take the shame yeah. out of it. I mean, I wrote it with the fully cognizant of the fact that my dad was at that time when I wrote the book, um, the former vice president of the United States and the nominee for, um, well, he wasn't the nominee at all, but by the time I had finished the book. But, um, uh, and a lot of people didn't think he was going to be the nominee uh, well um, before I finished the book. But the, the point is, is that I wanted to let people know that um, that I was there. I, I was one of those people in that room with them. And someone once said to me, "Is we've all been in rooms in which uh, in which we couldn't die." Um, and what he meant by that is that we've all done things that we're not proud of um, in our addiction, and sometimes not even in our addiction, in which. I wanted to let people know that I was in those rooms too. And I, and I got out, I made it out. Yeah. Uh, so there's a period in the book, you know, when you're, you, you kind of get back to LA and you sort of, I, I think you write that you essentially decided to succumb to addiction and, and kind of give up on, you know, like the sense of self you once had this past life. And that's when the, like the Giuliani attacks about Burisma and, and everything else really started to ramp up. You're obviously like, you know, using heavily at that point but were, were you monitoring these things in real time like uh, what what was that like to just see this shit just pop up no so you know I, I the truth is is that in a way um i had completely um insulated myself from it because i was so focused on my addiction i was so focused when when you're in that uh, at least at the level of addiction that i found myself in um uh in which I was smoking uh, literally every 15 to 30 minutes. And if I wasn't smoking, I was looking for, um, you know, a, a way to replenish my, my uh, supply. And, uh, and I would get uh, messages in from, uh, from people that cared about me, that loved me that said, Hunter, you gotta, you know, address this. You gotta, you know, this story is being written. And um, it just compounded my, uh, determination that, you know, 
I, um, you know, I'm the lost cause. I did, I'd given up on myself. I'd given up on, you know, I didn't, uh, I'd lost Bo. Um, uh, my daughters desperately, desperately, desperately were constantly, um, uh, trying to save me. I mean, they're, they're the most constant other than my, my dad, um, in, in my life, but I decided to just disappear. And strangely enough, what happened was, is that Adam Entos, who's a uh, New Yorker writer, um, got in touch with a friend of mine who is uh, my, my lawyer, but also my, my brother's oldest friend and my oldest friend, one of my older friend, oldest friends. And uh, he said, I'd like to talk to Hunter. And, uh, <laughs> and the reason I talked to him is because, you know, I was a, a, a snob. I, I mean, it was the New Yorker. I was right. surprised. I was like, I'm going to talk to this guy. Right, right. You know what I mean? I, because I always wanted to write for the New Yorker since I was 16 years old. And so, and he kind of saved my life. It's really, it's really interesting. He didn't have any intention of that, but it, it was really interesting. I, I, Open, open my heart just crack enough to uh, to meet Melissa. Yeah, you, you really laid it out to him. It resulted in this eleven thousand word piece that came out in I think July of twenty nineteen. Putting on my like political hack hat for a second. Yeah. In a sense, it was brilliant, right? Because as you said in the book, no one's calling up saying like, "Hey, we're hearing rumors." The Daily Mail and TMZ are reporting. You just fucking laid it all out there. But, but did you get a call from the campaign that was like, "Hey, no. is this coming?" Tom, Tommy, <laughs> you guys would have killed me. <laughs> <laughs> if you guys had gotten wind of this, there is no way that you would have ever allowed it to happen. You would have shut it down so fast. Like I knew, by the way, right. any professional would have. Um, and uh, and I had a, I, I had enough sense, and I, I've been around this long enough to know that if I had told anybody inside the campaign that, by the way, I'm talking to Adam Entos about all of these Giuliani accusations, but I decided also to get into a full description of the level of my, uh, uh, my crack addiction. I think people would have <laughs> literally, um, and, but to, in fairness, um, and you know, all the players, um, uh, when it did become evident that that's what I had done, they were fully supportive of, um, of, uh, of, of, of speaking the truth because mm-hmm. ultimately at the end of the day, what I realized is this, is that, you know what? We're not much different than anybody else right. as a family. Right. <laughs> you know, I don't know any family that doesn't have someone that they love, that they respect, that they believe is, um, is worth it. That has struggled with addiction. Um, uh, or an addiction, I include, um, the, the most addictive drug in the world. Um, in my opinion, it's alcohol, the most destructive. And I don't know anybody that um, uh, that uh, when it came out, you know, I think everybody was a little bit uh, shocked because I think what really shocks people, Tommy, is crack. Yeah. I think that more than anything, um, it, it carries such a, uh, it's, it's such a loaded um, word and it, it, it conjures things that are, uh, are, uh, are not necessarily true, but it really kind of shocks the conscious um, uh, a little bit. Yeah. But anyway, I think a lot of people saw in, in me um, and in our family, saw their families and saw themselves. Yeah, I, I do too. And look, I've worked in politics for a while. You've been around politics your whole life. Neither of us expects it to be gentle or always high-minded. That said, 
like to your point about every family experiences some sort of level of addiction. Donald Trump's brother, Fred, died at 43 because of alcoholism. You know, Donald Trump said that had a profound impact on him. But they they didn't just go after your business dealings. They went after your substance abuse problems, right? Like that little prick, Don Jr., like makes jokes about it, right? Like did, did that yeah. level of viciousness surprise you at all? Because it surprised me. I know he's a horrible human being devoid of empathy. That like it still it surprised me on a human level and on a political level because I, I just thought to myself, attacking someone for an addiction seems like a fucking crazy thing to do. Yeah. Well, just so there's a bunch of a few different ways that I think about it. But I think you do too. You put on your political hat, okay, and you wonder what the hell are they doing this for? Because um, it seems so vindictive, small, and mean. Like who are they appealing to right. by doing this? And you just try to figure out that part, which is hard to figure out um, uh, because I don't think most Americans are small, vindictive, and, and mean spirited. Um, then you put on the other uh, uh, hat is uh, what's their end game um, is uh, what is the, you know, what's the, what's the greater grand strategy here? And you realize there is no greater grand strategy. They are just small, vindictive and mean. And, um, but on a personal level, I, I have been, my dad's been a Senator since I was two years old. He's been in, uh, in the, in, in the middle of national politics my entire life, including at the highest levels with you guys in the administration. And, um, and I have never um, experienced or witnessed or know any time in history in which uh, there has been uh, a, uh, the, 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 that level of meanness. I don't know. I mean, Tommy, you, you're a student of, of this. I don't know. I don't, I don't think there has been. From, from soup to nuts with me. And so I finally figured out what it was. I really do believe they consciously understood that the most important thing to my dad was me mm-hmm. and my, my family, his family, not just me, but me, my sister, my brother, and his family. And if they could, um, uh, if they could attack me and keep me locked in my prison of addiction um, or, uh, or do worse to me, that um, to his one remaining son, that it would be almost impossible for him to, in some way, but they don't know him. They don't know. <laughs> they don't know us. Yeah. And what they didn't count on was that um, that has always just made us stronger. It made us, um, if we were, we were um, steel, where we were reinforced steel by the end of this campaign. Well, <clears throat> speaking as a guy whose um, day can be ruined by a mean tweet, uh, I have enormous respect for your resilience there and your father's resilience too. I mean, like, I guess, you know, for your, for, for your dad, for your family, I mean, it must have just been agony watching someone they love so much just be the subject of these attacks. Like, where's Hunter? Like, what, what is the end game of the where's Hunter attack? Like, you're going to, like, pop your head out of some, like, bank in Ukraine? Oh, here, like, what, what the fuck did they think they're going to find? Excuse my language. I don't know. I don't know, Tommy. I mean, that's the thing is, like, as I said in the book, I'm right here. Um, and, you know, I mean, and they've done a really good job of, of, uh, continuously harassing us on a personal level. I mean, you know, bullhorns outside the house when Melissa was pregnant and, um, you know, the, the text to your daughter really service. broke yeah. me like that, that like some yeah. random person said yeah. a harassing text to your daughter. I was like, how far yeah. have we fallen that someone would do that? Yeah. I mean, and, and that's, that's kind of almost a constant and, um, or, and particularly during back in the campaign, but 
there's it's it's really crazy, Tony. I, just the, the the actual story of it is I talked to Adam Entos when Giuliani kind of ramps up these attacks, which he clearly is doing this, you know, deal in Ukraine and which led to the impeachment and backfired on him. Um, and then all the personal attacks start and the, um, uh, but by then the New Yorker article came out. And so I, I, I felt incredibly inoculated mm-hmm. by the fact that, like I said, you don't need a laptop. You have my book. Right. Um, and, um, and then that, uh, that was when I met Melissa and uh, she started the hard work and I started the hard work of, of getting clean and sober. Yeah. And so all that period of time, when you think that it was like the, the weight of the world zombie, is that I knew I only had to do one thing right every day. And that was not to pick up a drink or a drug. When you have that level of focus and you realize how close you were to death and how awful your um, existence was, and you get to wake up next to someone that loves you and um, reconnect with all of the people that so care about you. You know, and I have to say, literally, it's the it's my brother gave me the key to my own the prison of my own making, which was beautiful things. And that's yeah. the, the title of the book is I get to wake up every day and I started this practice of just literally counting through my head all of the things that I have to be grateful for. And, um, and there were so many uh, that at least when I would set the table that way with all the beautiful things that I have in my life, um, all the other stuff just became, you know, background noise. Yeah. Yeah. Not that it didn't break through sometimes. It wasn't fun, but it was, uh, but you know, it was, it was a beautiful moment in my life at the same time. Right. Right. So, yeah, I, I want to talk about the recovery elements because I, I found it, I found it really interesting, really helpful to just to like kind of understand it better. Because look, I have a lot of alcoholics in my family. You know, my father was an alcoholic, but he was sober before I was kind of old enough to be aware of it. And it always look, it like it always struck me as almost surprising. He was like a guy who flew fighter jets and like drove up you know, motors. Right. Like he felt it's funny that someone in your life can feel so in control. And then to know that there's this other thing where they have no control. Yeah. So, you know, and I, I never sat down with him and said, like, what are the basics? So I was wondering if we could do that. Like, what, for listeners, like, what is AA? What is the 12-step program? Like, how does that work and how does that help someone who's battling addiction? Well, for me, I think I can talk about it in, uh, in the way that it has helped me. And number one is to realize that you're not alone. I think the biggest thing of walking into a room of other people that raise their hand and say, I'm an alcoholic or I'm an addict um, uh, is to realize that, uh, that you're not the only one. And then to hear in specificity of what it was like for them, what it's like now and what they're doing to get better um, is a, uh, is such an incredibly liberating thing because many addicts feel when they're, when they're trapped in their addiction is that no one could possibly understand what it's like or how their problems are greater than the problems that anybody else has are so unique that that they they can't be solved. And what you realize in those, those groups and the support groups um, in whichever form, whether it's AA or many others that are out there is the first thing you realize is you're not alone. And what addiction wants for you is for you to remain alone. Mm -hmm. It wants to be the only answer that you have. And when you start to realize that there may be another answer, it just is a, uh, 
it's an incredibly liberating feeling and uh, and hopefully you know, hang on to it yeah so and you also tried some more sort of um intense approaches like sort of taking other powerful drugs like ibogaine or, or ketamine to yeah. help reduce yeah. addiction yeah did that experience help at all like what was that like i think that every every piece of it helped every time that i um uh reached out for a solution um or reached out for um or took a helping hand um uh i think it um it had a, a hopefully a cumulative effect i think that uh my um uh and, and it's all about the level of intention that you put into it mm -hmm. um uh, my experience with ibogaine was very powerful um but it's not something that i necessarily would recommend to everybody but i i know the science behind it now and I know the science behind how it is particularly effective in treating people with PTSD and, uh, and particularly as it relates to opiate addiction. Um, I know the science behind the way in which uh, uh, ketamine infusion therapy is helping people with severe um, tra traumatic experiences. Uh, and I think that there are so many things that we have not explored uh, that, are, that, that could be useful but the one thing i do know too is that i don't think that there's any silver bullet i think that the and i do know this is that ultimately at the end of the day no matter what it's a um it's a it's a it's a decision that you have to make um uh day by day sometimes sometimes minute by minute um uh, because uh you know as I said before, the, my, the, the drug that has been the most uh, damaging to me, and I think damaging to all of society, is completely is ubiquitous. It's in front of you all the time, which is alcohol. Yeah, yeah. And it's marketed to you and everything, whether you know it or not. The, yeah. There's a really uh, stark line in the book where you write, there's a popular theory that an addict needs to hit bottom before he or she can be helped. The addicts I know who hit bottom are dead. Um, that like terrible conventional wisdom, I thought was a good reminder that there is no instruction manual that I've seen for like how to help someone you know, or you love that you see dealing with addiction. You know, in, in the book, you describe a lot of different, uh, you know, attempts to get sober, including, you know, a surprise intervention by your family that, that just, it doesn't yeah. go well. It's really heartbreaking. Do you have advice for folks who might be listening, who maybe have an addict in their life and they want to help them before they sort of hit that rock bottom point? Like, is there anything you'd suggest of like how to deal with yes. that? Just number one, don't give up hope. Um, I know how awful it is. It's the, the, the pain that an addict can cause. Um, and I'm not talking about when addicts act out in ways that are violent and, um, uh, and, and criminal. I mean, right. that, is, that is something that I think that is uh, obviously you have to protect yourself against no matter what. But if you have someone that you love that is uh, just not getting it and, and you keep reaching out to help them and they keep rejecting that help, it's just know this. It's not about you. It's not that your love isn't enough. It's not that, you, um, uh, you know, that you're not enough for them. It's not about you. It is, it is a, it's a disease of the brain. It, you have literally the, the, the neurons that are, are firing um, and that the, what is being told to the addict is, is that, you have, that, that there's only one answer to their pain. There's only one answer, which is to continue to reach for the drug that they become physically and, uh, and in many ways psychologically dependent upon. 
So what I say is this, is that I know this. When I was in the middle of that tunnel of addiction and there was not light on either side, the chances of me finding my way out unless someone came into the tunnel with a lantern to guide me out were zero. And so I just say to all of those people that have someone that they love and that they know is worth saving is just never, never stop trying, never stop trying. Um, and, and I want to ask you in a minute about the, the person who helped you get out of that tunnel, but just one more question. Like there's a juxtaposition in the book, I think of sort of, of, of your situation and sort of like the, the privilege and money you made through consulting, including the, the Burisma contract, uh, and the reality of the typical, uh, crack user or crack seller and the sort of the communities in America in particular that, that the drug is ravaged. And, you know, your experience is obviously like pretty atypical, right? Like the money allowed you to fall off the grid. It allowed you to buy huge quantities of drugs. It, it, and at times it seemed to protect you because, you know, when sort of users or, or dealers are coming in and out of hotel rooms in LA or when the staff finds paraphernalia, right? Their reaction isn't have him arrested. It's, you know, politely kick him out. So like looking back, I just wonder how you viewed sort of the money you made through your your clients that enabled that addiction and also maybe the ways it protected you from consequences that might have landed a lot of other people in jail. I think it's completely unfair. And I think that, that, uh, that I am 100% the, um, still here today and not in a uh, jail cell or um, in an institution. Uh, because of my privilege and not just the privilege of a family that loved me, but the privilege of the fact that, you know, I, I had uh, been uh, very successful at, up until the point that I wasn't in, and uh, had uh, the ability to uh, make a choice in many respects of staying in the, in the motel at $89, you know, a night on, in, uh, you know, in uh, along 95 in Connecticut or at a, you know, $300 a night, you know, suite in LA. And what I always say is that, you know, what we have to start to, uh, and this is, this is the conversation I'm, I'm all in for is addiction. Drug use is a mental health problem. It is a, uh, it's a, a, a problem that can be addressed and we need to be able to start to discuss it as a mental health problem within the con within the structure of our health systems. Um, and it is not a criminal problem. It is, it is not a, uh, it's not a problem that can be solved or addressed by um, uh, uh, the criminal justice system. We've no, we, one thing we're absolutely certain, I'm, I, I can say with, I'm 100% certain about, is the criminal justice system has done nothing to be able to solve our addiction um, epidemic that we are, um, that we've been in, and now it's just gotten worse, particularly with the pandemic. And, uh, you know, I got the opportunity of, of high-end rehabs um, and alternative treatments when 99% of the people they get a, uh, the, the only answer they have is jail or an institution. Yeah. Have you, do you like lobby your dad or like DOJ or lawmakers on, on sort of these, the need to decriminalize these things? Cause like, I, I agree with you. It seems like a conversation that's starting, but is, is not picking up steam fast enough sometimes. Yeah. Well, 
I, I understand the question, but as you know, I don't lobby my dad about no, anything. No, wrong yeah, word. I just mean, I, like, but, advocate but for, yeah. Look, I mean, I, I wrote, um, uh, I, I know what I, what I believe. I'm ready to engage in the discussion um, uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a public way with you. I, I know that I, I think that the, we just have to start to rethink it. I think one of the people that has been, um, uh, I don't think has been, I know, knows more about this from a personal level, but also from a policy level is Patrick Kennedy, um, who's done an enormous amount of work um, when he was in Congress and yeah. um, and still continues to do. And I think it's something that uh, it's, a, it's a really opportune time, Tony, to begin to really look at this because like I said, right now, I don't know if you've seen the numbers from the CDC as it relates to um, uh, uh, addiction and overdose is not just as it relates to opiate, but across the board during this time of the pandemic. And it is just staggering, staggering. Yeah. 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 Um, last question. So, you know, you, you miraculously, you met your wife, uh, Melissa, uh, in LA, you fell in love, you figured out a way to get sober. I mean, can, can you tell the story of like how this happened, how it's going? Um, yeah. because it's pretty, it, it is, it's a truly miraculous ending to, to the story. Yeah, I know. I'm. I'm. Uh, yeah, I got to write book too, so that people know that it it, it, uh, it actually worked. Um, but because it is a, uh, it seems miraculous. But one of the things I since writing the book and, and telling the story, what I, I found is that you know, I I'm not the first person that um, that ever fell in love at first sight, uh, and um, and I ended up. I don't know why I should ever be this lucky. I, I, I know that I have my guardian angels of my, my brother and sister and my mom. And, and, uh, and I'd love to think that they had a, that had a hand in it. But what I always say about Melissa is this, is that she did the, that uh, she did, she was a stranger um, in a, uh, uh, in a, uh, that had a familiar soul. It felt like coming home, but I knew that I had already, I, I rejected that love from home so many times uh, that it took someone uh, that, that didn't have all of that, uh, uh, my immediate rejection of, like literally, like I talk about at the, at the intervention, like I ran, I literally ran away. And um, whatever it was, you know, my heart was open just enough um, uh, for, for me to allow Melissa to do start the hard work. And man, it was hard, Tommy. I'll tell you what. I mean, I was drinking a quarter vodka a day and smoking an enormous amount of, uh, uh, of drugs and anything else that I could put in my body to just numb myself. And, uh, and you know, Melissa had... She took my keys, she took my phone, she, I mean, she took my pants. I mean, I literally couldn't leave the, the, the house and, and she had to do that work for a long time. Uh, yeah. But, uh, you know, I ended up in uh, a pretty great place. Well, that is, um, it's a, it's a great book. Uh, the book is Beautiful Things. I think everyone should read it because, I don't know, it's rare to read an honest account of, of addiction uh, and of recovery and uh, of a human story about a family and love. Uh, and I think it's just very much worth your time. So thank you for writing it. Uh, and thanks for talking to me today. It's great to see you again, Tommy. You it's too. Been, it's been a long, long time. <laughs> see, yeah, you, yeah. see you on a flight to Boston <laughs> in a couple of weeks, maybe? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Thank you, buddy. 
Thank you to Hunter Biden for joining us today. We'll see you guys Wednesday night at Group Thread. And then uh, Dan and I will have a pod on Thursday about the, uh, the big joint address. Bye, everyone. Bye. Pod Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our senior producer is Flavia Casas. Our associate producers are Jordan Waller, Jazzy Marine, and Olivia Martinez. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Katie Long, Roman Papadimitrio, Caroline Rustin, and Justine Howe for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Nar Malconian, Yale Freed, and Milo Kim, who film and upload these episodes as videos every week.